welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Here we are on Thursday, November the 5th at 11.27 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And Steve and I decided to uh, put out an unedited, raw, special episode that relates to the current madness, and that might be an understatement, that the United States is going through right now with our presidential election. We've been sending out um, some tweets on the topic. Today's newsletter was dedicated to the topic. And we didn't think that too many people were going to want to hear from us on this since it's not really in our wheelhouse of peak performance, sustainable success. But surprisingly, a lot of you have been responding with really good questions and comments. So here's what I'll say. We're going to be back to our regular programming with great interviews. We've got Katie Arnold coming up, who's a phenomenal runner and writer. Um, We've got topics such as elaborating on how to be clutch since that episode did really well and all of our usual high performance stuff. Um, This is on our minds right now, this being the election. If you are sick of election coverage, if you don't want to hear me and Steve on this, um, we get it. You can just pick us up next week with our regular content. Uh, If you are interested, we're hoping to offer a little bit of a different take than what is out there. And the last thing that I'll say to set context, just again, so you guys get the full picture, is in our decision to record this, I called Steve and I'm like, me and you are probably going to be chatting about this stuff anyways. So let's hit record. And if some people find it useful and interesting, great. Uh, If not, we were going to be talking anyways. So that is the extent of our prep for today. Yes, raw and unedited. Uh, The only thing I'd add to frame this is our hope is to have a nuanced discussion. So, you know, one of the things that I've seen in witnessing all of this, and Brad can tell you that out of us two, I despise politics um, and I'm generally very inactive at it. Um, But one of the things we've seen is just there's a lack of nuance. And our goal is to bring that to you and just have this open and honest conversation. If it makes you feel like angry or discomfort, I would challenge you and say that's a good thing. This isn't a time where we need to be isolated in our views, siloed off in what we think. We need to figure out a way how to gain back the ability to listen to one another. So Hopefully, this conversation that Brad and I have um, contributes to that to a degree. So let's get started. Great. So the first thing that I want to say, and I um, I threw something out on Twitter to this extent this morning, is on a very individual level uh, and more in our wheelhouse, is now is such a good time to practice focusing on what you can control and trying not to waste energy on what you cannot. You cannot control the election results. You cannot control when 538 or CNN or New York Times or Fox News is going to update their tracker. What you can control is how you spend your time, attention, and energy. So you can sit there and refresh, 
or you can go do a workout or walk outside. All of that said, even more important is to be kind to yourself if and when you mess up. Uh, Steve and I make a living writing, coaching, researching on how to be grounded, calm, collected, cool under pressure. I can tell you that both of us have found ourselves up in the middle of the night checking the internet. It's not our best. We don't think that's a good thing, but we don't beat ourselves up about it because A, these are extenuating circumstances, and B, beating yourself up about something like that never helps. It only makes things worse. So to begin our nuance on a personal level, focus on what you could control, try to spend less time checking, compulsively refreshing, and when you find yourself doing it, recognize what's going on, ask yourself, do I really want to be doing this? If you say yes, okay. If you say no, okay too. Just don't beat yourself up about it. Yeah, I couldn't uh, couldn't have said it better. And I think that gets to a point that the further down this rabbit hole we go of like obsessively checking, being like all in on this, and I get it. I understand why why we are, why it matters, like it's important. But the further down that rabbit hole go, the fur the further I think it pushes us to. Um, to cement our views and see other sides or see other people who have opposing views as crazy or whatnot. So as I sit here and it feels more and more like a sporting competition where there's a winner and a loser and we have a side and all that stuff, I can't help but think that politics should be more boring. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that and I don't know how to say this without coming across crazy, and maybe I'm taking us on a tangent, but like no, I, I I'm going to bring us back if you are because I, I go, but go on. I have a way to definitely thread the needle into actually what's happening right now. Yeah, but I I I think that like the excite we almost get lost in the excitement and thrill or fear of it all. And it's like we're watching Game 7 of the World Series or the the Super Bowl, um, and it's Patriots versus Falcons. And, you know, one team has a lead and the other team is, like, coming back, you know, uh, vigorously. And it's like we have this personal connection and we lose perspective and we lose sight of, like, that the reality is we're all on the same team. And all, hopefully, or I'll say the majority, hoping for the same thing, which is like America coming out of this in a better spot and in a better direction, even if we disagree on what that direction is. And even before that, hoping that every single legally cast vote is counted and every vote that is illegally cast or so unclear that there is no way to discern what the person intended is not counted. I don't think anyone, I hope if you are, then you're probably not going (laughs) to like Steve and I, but if we can't start in this moment by agreeing that all the legally votes cast should be counted in votes that are illegally, I don't even like votes that I guess votes can be illegally cast. They should not be counted. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, it's very simple and I think it's, it's, you know, we all agree on that, and there are systems in place 
to make sure that happens, systems and checks, and we need to let those run out. And, you know, I was thinking before we got on this podcast and had this conversation that like a rule of thumb is anyone that is screaming without evidence that's, that something is rigged or fraud or suppressed, that that's that you probably shouldn't listen to that person. And that person's probably losing. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it's a general rule. True, but like it, it, it reminds me of it reminds me of. Uh, and the key is thing without evidence. Yes, right? with evidence, of course, you should listen to that person. Right, exactly. It reminds me of a, a sporting contest, like a, f- a football game, right? And the the losing team starts screaming at the refs, right? And if the refs haven't done anything, and if the replays all you know confirm or whatever that nothing occurred. Then they shouldn't be screaming at the refs. That's just yeah. horrible. But, but if, if I, I want to, uh, yeah, go ahead, Steve. I was just gonna tie this up. Is if the ref is like, if the instant replay shows that the ref made the wrong decision, then of course we should correct it. Yeah, I'm gonna bring us back because I don't want to get down the rabbit hole of like Donald Trump bashing. That's not what we're here to do on this podcast. Um, back to something that you said about the hope that our election needs to be more boring. So I have been thinking about this, and what comes to my mind is the BCS Championship Selection Sunday or the NCAA Tournament Selection Sunday. They don't announce every single vote for what seed a team should be or who's going to get in the playoffs or not as the votes come in. They announce them at once at a set time when everybody knows that they are going to be announced. That, to me, is a good starting point for how to think about reporting election results. Now, there's some nuance here. Federal, okay, so I'm going to step back here. So a lot of people have been saying we should have federal control of elections. There should be one rule book for every state to adhere to. And that all sounds great, but to those people I ask you, would you want Donald Trump in Bill Barr like arbitrating over the election. And if you're a staunch Republican, would you want Barack Obama and Joe Biden or Joe Biden and Kamala Harris arbitrating over the election? Probably not. So I actually think that having some um, some discrepancy across the states and having state autonomy is a very good way to protect against politicizing the election from the federal government, particularly from the party that's currently in power. Uh, another thing to point out, the election system, as far as we know, is going very smoothly. There is no evidence of fraud. There is no evidence of, um, of hacking. The, the law has been followed. You might think that the law suppresses the vote, but there is a law, a set of rules that we currently have, and people have been able to vote more than ever in any other election. So everything is working. And as they report the votes, they're not like changing how they reported the votes. That's working, too. So the only thing that isn't working is how the public is being made aware of what is happening. I agree. <laughs> so, so like the selection Sunday, the the you know I, I tweeted something about that, and someone named Paul Graham, he founded Y Combinator. He's just a very, I think he's a very like thoughtful person. His response to me was something along the lines of like, "Good luck with no leaks happening." So 
let's say that you do this thing where you're in a black box and all the votes are reported on the Friday of election day. And in each black box, you have, you know, eight Republican lawyers, eight Democrat lawyers, the county clerk, who is ever supposed to be in that room. The fear is that stuff's going to be leaked and it's going to be an even bigger shit show. But to that, I say, OJ Simpson was on trial. Michael Jackson has been on trial. Like the juries weren't le- there. I don't know. There are precedents for very high profile public events, none as high profile as this, where you can do something like that. I don't know, Steve. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a step in the right direction. I, I think you know, if you might have leaks, I don't know, but y- y- you know, the the reality is like it wouldn't be the several day charade that it is now. And I think the other thing that you have to think of is how do we ensure that all votes are basically, you know, accounted for and able to vote um, much sooner? Because if you could do it in a shorter time frame, this is that selection Sunday would work. If you had November 3rd as your election day, your voting day, and then November 4th at, I don't know, whatever time you want to do it, um, then the gap between those would be hopefully short enough where leaks wouldn't occur to the to that degree. And in order to do that, you'd have to have a system that accounted for absentee and mail-in votes and all those stuff and, and allowed those to be counted earlier um, and some rules around when they you know had to be in, in by, which I think as long as those rules are set far enough in advance and, and somewhat of a standard could work i agree or you know you instead of doing it on the friday you do it the following tuesday so just basically at a point when all the votes are in yeah because again the hoopla is not about voting day the hoopla is waiting for results no one's freaking out after they cast their vote everyone starts freaking out at 7 p.m when random states report random precincts I, i i think that you know again if you did it the following tuesday the longer the gap the more the problems the more leaks um, just because people are going to want to know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, we already have a model for this. It's Oregon, which votes entirely by mail, <laughs> but has all of their, like, knows what's happening essentially the night of the election, if not the day after, because of the rules that they have in place. So, so it's not like this is a foreign concept. You could have it all decided by the next day, all counted by the next day, essentially, um, if if you set it up right. Yeah, so I think that that is something that hopefully both parties can agree to and can agree on a system for counting votes and re- not counting votes, reporting votes to the public that can help us avoid some of this chaos. Um, all right, moving on to two other topics I know we wanted to hit. Um, we'll go in the same order that we briefly touched upon them in the newsletter. The first is why and how the polling was so wrong. And then the second is what on earth do we do after a winner is declared? So we're not going to solve either of these problems or um, have I shouldn't say the first one's not a problem. We're not going to be perfect on either of these things. We never are, but we're going to do our best to to think about this in an interesting way. So, okay, ballots or not ballots? Jesus, I am tired. Um, <laughs> excuse Pol- me. Polls. Um, polls. Yeah, polls. So that's what happens when you're up in the middle of the night scrolling. Um, you get tired. Polls. So 
I'll start with this one, Steve, because this was the one that was most on my mind before the newsletter. So I was super um, confident in the polls. And my rationale was twofold. The first is that I thought that pollsters were going to be extra conservative. And if anything, way like overcompensate for their errors and favor Donald Trump. And my rationale for this is simple. It's their whole industry and their jobs. They mess this up. No one is going to take them seriously. No one is going to listen to their polls. So that's a pretty strong incentive. The second reason that I was keen that the polls were accurate is because if you can't tell, I am hoping that Joe Biden wins this election. You can hate me for it. You can love me for it. But um, that's where I'm at. So there's definitely some motivated reasoning on my part. I was looking for assurance and I was seeing what I wanted to see. Then two days before the election, Zainab Tefeki, um, who's a really thoughtful, um, just I don't even know what I'd call her, like philosophical, logical thinker. She writes a lot about robots and technology. She's super smart. She published an opinion piece in the New York Times that basically said, election projections are not a real science. Stop paying attention. And she made such a compelling case that I can sum up in three bullet points. The first is the first time we ever had a polling, aka a data set for this in a presidential election was 1972. There have been 12 elections since then. You cannot have a robust science when your sample size is 12. Point number two, there have been three elections with social media, which no one argues changes how people think about voting. You certainly can't have a robust science with a sample size of three. Point number three, there have been zero elections with projections in the middle of a pandemic when economies have been open and closed on and off. You cannot have a quote-unquote science with no sample size. As Steve tweeted, it is astrology. So I read that and I'm like, ugh, maybe I shouldn't be so confident. But then my motivated reasoning told me, well, she's talking about the projection. She's not talking about the polls, right? Polls are just data. So I said to myself, okay, I'm not going to pay attention to these projections and these models, but if all the polls are showing that Biden's up 8 to 10 nationally, and all the polls in the swing states are showing fairly sizable gaps, then that's a real pattern. So I said, it's going to be okay. And as we now know, this is a bigger polling miss than 2016. Many of the polls are off by 6 to 10 percentage points, if not more. The top polls from Wisconsin came in showing Biden up 17 points. He won Wisconsin by half a point. So these are egregious level errors. So what's going on here? And my friend Mark made it really simple to me. And this crystallized in the middle of election day, excuse me, in the middle of the day after the election, when I'm like, geez, how did the polls get it so wrong? He's like, dude, who answers the random caller ID blocked phone calls and then has a half an hour conversation with pollsters? I'm like, not me. He's like, do you think many Americans do? No. So while the polls have all of this diversity of age, race, geography, gender, what they don't have is they have no diversity between people that don't pick up random phone calls and talk to pollsters and people that do. So what the polls told us very accurately is that amongst people that pick up the phone and talk to pollsters, Biden had a commanding lead. What we learned, and this is incontestable based on facts, is that people that pick up the phone and talk to pollsters are not a representative sample of the electorate. 
And it's that simple. So that's my rant on the polls. I'm sure there are other reasons that they're off. But to me, the simplest reason is that very, very clear made four years ago in this year is that in this current environment, people that pick up the phone and talk to pollsters do not represent the, the American voter. So two or one or two things on that. Um, first off, my brother is a economist. Okay. And we have this debate all the time on whether economics is kind of a science or not. And whenever we have this debate, because I'm in the science world, science field, I always come down to economics is more of kind of a pseudoscience. And I'm sorry for any economists who are listening, but it's kind of a pseudoscience dressed up as a science. It has these sciencey type things that go along with it, right? This collection of data and all this stuff. But if you look at its ability to predict, it's horrible. And taking this to the polls, it's the same kind of thing, right? And it's a lot of it is based on similar models, but it's got all these things dressed up to make us feel like it's a science, to feel like there's precision there. But it's not really because of the, the, the way that the data is collected, as you right, right, rightfully pointed out there, Brad, is there is a huge selection bias and that polls are almost like a 20th century technology that um, is applied to the 21st century with phone calls and even online stuff and all that good stuff. Um and it just it just doesn't give us the results that we think it does. It's a bunch of data that doesn't really mean anything. And yeah, and one of the challenges to my to my article and a few emails that we received back is okay, well, there were also polls conducted on the internet and I hear that and that's true. But and I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten that have asked me to fill out information about the presidential election, I have no idea if they're even pollsters because I don't open the emails. Yeah, a- again, there's an innate uh, innate selection bias, and we correct for things, but in science, we don't know if we're correcting for the right thing or not, right? So in this case, we correct for age and race and uh, uh, you know educational status and have all those things diverse and equal, but... There's certain things that we don't know that we can't correct for, right? And in this case, it might be who in the world on the internet is going to click on a thing to fill out a poll or answer a phone call when no one in their right mind answers phone calls from random numbers anymore. So, or picks up emails from Marist or Quinnipiac University. I mean, let's go over our listeners. If you get an email from Quinnipiac University that says, you know, you've been selected for a presidential election poll, my guess is that less than 5% of our listenership is going to click and open that email. Well, and I'm not judging values. And, if and, you don't, it doesn't mean you're a crappy citizen. If you do, it doesn't mean you've got nothing better to do. It's just selecting for people that are super interested in polls and filling out polls. And some of the, some of the way it works, too, is not even email. It's, sometimes it's a uh, click on a Facebook ad or an ad whatever that collects things. So again, you get, you get this unconscious bias uh, towards, you know, 
a selection group that you can't really control for. So we, we could get into the weeds on... That we know isn't... But I want to come back to it. We know that selection group isn't representative of America. Because, again, on this podcast, I bet if we took a poll, most people probably... And again, this is values neutral. Most people probably do not open those emails, do not get those phone calls, and do not click on those ads. Yeah. So I think, but looking forward in into, okay, what does that mean for polling in the future? I think it 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 kind of makes it where we have to figure out another system or like figure Don't out... Don't use it. Just go away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the ideal way is let it, let it go away because it also drives false narratives, which can impact the election in the sense if you're an underdog with a chance to win, you might feel more motivated to, 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 um, you know, to vote. If you think you've campaigns can do their own internal polling. I'm just saying like the public just can't consume them and, and it'll go away if the public stops caring. And if people don't click on stories about polls, because that's, then the industry will go away. And, and the other part of it is there's this, gosh, I can't remember, but it's all this, this old psychology rule of thumb that once you measure something and start targeting what you measure, it has now become useless, right? Oh, the is it the Hawthorne effect maybe? It might be. I, I don't remember. I think the Hawthorne effect might be like um, once you observe something, then the behavior changes because you're observing it. So like the famous example of the Hawthorne effect is um, like you you observe someone's respiration rate, how many breaths they take a minute, but now that they know that you're watching them, the respiration rate's going to change. Right, exactly. Something along those lines. So it, it you know, it's this this thing where I think I think we've overvalued the polls, which influences our behavior. So they should just go away. Is the conclusion. <laughs> Yeah. And this is something else that, you know, Steve, you and I have talked about um, quite a bit over the last few days is, and it's easy for us to say this because we are not running for president and we do not make a living doing polls, writing about politics, what have you. And just freaking imagine if all the money that was put into this race went towards COVID testing finding people that are homeless homes, asthma inhalers for kids in the inner city, food for the one-fifth of children whose schools are closed that are going hungry. I could go on and on. And again, I get it because someone could say, well, imagine if success and performance books weren't written because we don't need those and we could donate the money to kids. Okay. Well, now I will make a values judgment. I think that the sheer amount, I'm not saying there shouldn't be coverage of an election, but the sheer amount of coverage and the sheer amount of campaign spending is absurd. And I I, I struggle to take off my blinders and, and get to any argument. We're spending you know, half a billion dollars on the Senate and probably well over a billion dollars on the presidential race makes any sense. And other countries do this better. I, I, I think the last figures I saw was it was something over $2 billion on the election. And I agree. Um, I think there's you two... Guys, there's, people could be buying our books with that money, Steve. I know. There's two simple solutions. There's two simple solutions to this. Okay. Number one, our election has to be shorter. Okay. It can't drag on for nine, ten months uh, a, it makes it where people who are trying to get reelected are no longer governing, 
and are emphasized on election and raising money. And B, it kills us from it it just further divides us because if you've it's like a baseball season we have 162 games to fall in love with our team and become diehards well we have nine months of constant stuff to become diehards for whatever political team we're on so it should be shorter it should be like a month (laughs) tops and the second part of it is there should be very 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 concrete caps of campaign spending so that there doesn't need to be raised like raising this stuff give people equal opportunity on debates or whatever have you for it right and create a system where it's like here's here's my five page summary of my policies and beliefs and have that available to all and maybe maybe even link it to the voting so you can just click on it and see what someone stands for as you're sitting there voting something like that i think i think simplifying the system like other countries have shortening things up minimizing spending to a large degree takes back democracy and makes it more about like ideas, values, etc. Another thing that is a little radical but that I would love to see is again if when you're voting you could create some very simple thing like I said that shows you like just snapshot their wikipedia on views we'll call it and get rid of where it says R&D next to their name and make people actually think and investigate a little bit. That's brilliant. I think that is so smart. Wiping... So obviously, we're still going to have... I shouldn't say obviously, but in my mind, obviously, we're still going to have parties. And you can run as a Republican or a Democrat, but on all of the material that's sent out, on all of the ads, you strip any any party notion. Even on the ballot, I think you strip the party notion. I agree. And maybe you have like the three biggest issue in one sentence about it. So like the issues this year would be what? COVID, the economy, and um, voter rights or the Supreme Court. I don't know. Like you'd have to figure it out and it would be a shit show agreeing to it between the parties. But guess what? It's less of a shit show than what we have right now. Yeah. I don't even think you need to agree to it. I think you just give people... Oh, you just get to pick. Yeah. Yeah. It's like here's here's 500 words that like pop up when you click your name (laughs) next to your vote. Like put what you want in there on on what issues. I think that's really, really smart. And to your campaign idea, I agree. I think the simplest way to do it is to say that each campaign can fundraise up to X dollars per quarter. And maybe that number is ten million or twenty million. Again, I don't know what it is, but you cap it because I, otherwise you just get hoopla. I, I, by hoopla, yeah. I mean like the constant TV ads and YouTube ads, and it's just nonstop. I think it's not even raised. I think it's it's campaign raised and spending. That way, you don't have just some rich guy who self funds. Um, yes, that's a, that's a good. Uh, that's what I meant, and that's a yeah. good clarification. All right, so we've taken on polling. Now we are going to go to Steve's newsletter. And Steve, I'll let you start with a soliloquy and then maybe I'll comment. And Steve today wrote about what happens after a winner is declared and after, God willing, there is some agreement on that winner and we don't go into like a soft civil war in America. Yes. I can't even begin to imagine a hard civil war. I think capitalism and corporations will save us from people killing each other. And I do fear a world 
where Republicans don't do business with Democrats. And it's like a weird, soft kind of civil war. I don't want that to happen. I don't think that will happen. And Steve's going to tell us what he thinks and how to avoid that. Yes. No small order. The fate of the world rests on my next couple minutes. Hey, hey, that's very American-centric. Not the fate of the world, the fate of America. America, if anything, (laughs) it is not the fate of the world. The world is laughing at America. (laughs) Yes, that is true. Um, Anyways, so what are we talking about here? Well, I think, you know, what I wrote about this week is division and coming together. And there's some very classic psychology experiments that have been validated and expanded upon that basically show that creating division is very simple. An artificial division based on essentially nothing, right? If you can just create an us versus them, if you can create competition, if you can create an idea that the other side of anything is evil and different, then division happens, hatred expands, and it's all over. And we see this in sports all the time. Yankees, Red Sox, right? Back in the day, um, Lakers, Celtics, right? And what happens, according to psychology again, is once we have these divisions, we stop seeing reality. We stop seeing how things are. And we know this from sports. Again, I like using sports because most people enjoy it and most people can relate to it. But if you're a a Lakers fan, you stop seeing LeBron James committing any fouls and you start seeing the opposing teammate, let's say they're playing the Rockets, you start seeing every single flop that James Harden does and doesn't get called. Right? You stop seeing and Again, there's hundreds of experiments in psychology that confirm this, that we become blinded the further intertwined we are with our our label, our rooting team, our political party. So that that's number one. I think that is the problem, and that political parties, pundits, etc., on either side, want to push us further into this identity because it makes it easier for them to get our vote and stay in line with the party, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So number one, I think a major problem here is division is easy to create. And it can be subconscious to a degree. But what do we do about it? And in this research I kind of explained um, in the newsletter this week is that coming together is dependent a lot of times on finding some common goal that we can unite around. Now, that's a lot harder than it that it seems, but if you think back to those of you who are alive and old enough to 9-11, like, we all came together in the name of a common enemy. We can debate the, you know, the logistics of that or the, the rightness of that, but the, the, unique, the country came together because there was a common goal. And I think finding something to that degree should be, you know, a um, something that we're looking for, something that can come together and, and unite us. But w- one more thing I want to say on this before leaving this topic is that... No, I'm going to challenge you. We're not going to leave it. Go ahead. Is that um, I think it's very imperative that instead of pushing 
towards our silos and pushing towards thinking the other side is evil, we find ways to find common ground and understand that, you know, people are complex and nuanced and that we can't label 72 million people socialist and we can't label 68 million people racist. Now, are there some racist people among that 68 million? Yes. Are there some socialist people among those 72 million? Yes. But when we just... one last night. Yeah. <laughs> when, when we just label an entire group, it, it makes it where we just stop engaging with each other and stop, uh, you know, having conversations and discussions with each other. And we stop realizing that, like, although we have some differences, we're all human beings and we're all much more alike than we are different. And if we look at the bell curve of society, most of us fall in these, you know, middle grounds versus the extremes that we tend to label on on um, on our different sides. All right. So I have two 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 points to bring up. Um, one is um, a direct challenge, and one is just um, more of like having you clarify about how we get away from these supercharged words. So I'll start with the easier assignment, which is the latter. So let's take socialism for an example. We are all, if you are an American citizen, and don't hang up on the podcast right now if this triggers you, we are all democratic socialists. If you get Medicare when you're over 65, if you rely on the fire department or the police department, if you drink water that comes through pipes, if you drive on any road that is not a private toll road, you are a democratic socialist. So my first question for you, Steve, is how do we start undoing some of the... um, just like the extreme emotion attached to these words. And there's socialism, which is like everything is shared, which America is not. But then there's democratic socialism, which loosely defined is we vote for what is shared and some things are. And that is this country to a T. This country is a democratic socialist country right now, by definition. So I would, uh, you know, you kind of hinted at that, but even saying democratic socialism like turns people off because it's been like ingrained that socialist is a negative word. So my... Again, all socialist means is that we're divvying up resources across the state. Right. But I think this is where, again, I think that sometimes the... We'll use broad generalities, but the left like takes these nuanced concepts and assumes that people are going to get the nuance, but they're not. So I think it I, I think labeling like has a very strong effect and matters. And if we know that socialism is a label and a trigger, then we need to figure out some other way to describe what is actually happening or what is actually going on. You know, if it is FDR esque is what we're trying to do, great. You know, you can still hate it. But as part of America is, you know, what yeah. FDR did. Yeah. 
So I, I think verbiage matters in the labels, and it's the same thing. I know, you know, we've talked about this before, but defund the police. If you, oh, if, what a terrible fucking branding. Yeah, if you understand the concept, it's it's okay. How are we dividing up the money, and should we divide it up a different way? But defund says like that seems like take it away to anyone. So it's a horrible, it's it's a horrible label. No one should. Yeah. No one should. Worst, it, it, yeah, that is that is. And now I get to like rag on my own side. It's the worst fucking label ever. But like, particularly because what you're saying is give the police more and better resources. Like the vast majority of people that are serious about police reform want to provide social workers, psychologists, um, either separate from the police, but working with the police, or actually embed them in police departments. The difference between defund the police and give the police more, more and better and appropriate resources couldn't be more stark. And a very interesting thing that I've heard now from a few pundits is one of the reasons um, that, and again, this is just pundits, one of the reasons that these pundits are suspecting that um, black males continue to support Donald Trump at rates higher than people would think are because many of them live in very crime-ridden areas and they hear defund the police and they're like, hell no, Like, I need the police. So, and I think this is like central to understanding each side and understanding what you're talking about because verbiage matters, labels matter, and in a social media-esque world, we're not going to take the time to understand the nuance that, that we need to. And this goes across, it's the same, and the way I kind of see it is anything that puts someone, we'll call it triggers, or puts them on the extreme defense means that they no longer listen. If I say socialism, part of the country is no longer listening because they're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. I'm not listening. Like, you're, you're nuts, okay? If I say racism, part of the country or... Sorry, if I say white supremacy, part of the country turns their their brain off, right? Because it's like, I'm not a white supremacist, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying we shouldn't call out white supremacy. We should to a degree, but we need to call it out where it is and the evidence demands and not use broad labels um, because all it does is is create more divide where where there shouldn't be divide. So we need to like take the time to understand to be very deliberate on the messages that we're sending across because yes. Unfortunately, we're in a spot where people use shortcuts and shortcuts yeah. like the human brain is designed for shortcuts and shortcut thinking. And when I you know, for whatever reason, socialism is a shortcut. You know, white supremacy is a shortcut. Whatever other, you know, labels are are a short are a shortcut to stop thinking, to get defensive, and to say, okay, that person that is saying that doesn't understand me, doesn't understand what's going on. So I'm gonna stop listening to him and label them as like evil, nuts, like whatever other labels we want to call. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And again, it's like back to the police. Like you can at the same time hold two ideas at once, at least I can, which is 
what we've seen out of the police in terms of overt and systemic racism over the last few years is god awful and we should throw every tool in the shed at it to fix it and make it better. Well, the the fr- and we can still have police departments and police departments can still serve important roles in the community. Both of those things can be true at once. The framing is very simple. We have teachers, we love teachers, we support teachers, but at some point we decided teachers need a counselor in the school, a nurse in the school, a uh, special education specialist and a gifted and talented specialist to help them do their job. Yep. And I'm going to take it one step further. The the issue, and this is funny because both sides of the political aisle feel the same way, but they both attack the different groups. Um, the right loves to attack teachers unions because they say that teachers unions protect shitty teachers, which I actually think is true. The left loves to attack police unions because they say that police unions protect shitty cops. I also think that's true. So I think the other level issue, and we're not here to discuss the merits of unions and police and teaching. There's probably pros and cons. Um, But what I am here to say is a big part of it also has to be to discard of the shitty teachers and discard of the shitty cops. Because some are dying for resources and help and they don't want to be stigmatized and um, all that stuff, as we talked on a few podcasts ago with JoJo about racism, uh, JoJo knows like good dudes that are cops, both white and black, and they hate what's going on, and they hate the fact that people like look the other way and spit at them. Okay, teachers dislike that too, but the the, the fucking cop that kneeled on George Floyd and any cop that has thoughts like that go through their heads, they should be found and they should be fired. No different than the teacher that taught me Spanish, but I didn't learn Spanish because every day she just put on Mulan. I mean, it was back in the day. It wasn't Mulan. It was like Little Mermaid. <laughs> um, she should be fired too. I, I don't know. So, I think anyway, that... That's a little rant. I think that teacher is great. I would have loved well, her well, in high well, school. Well, yeah. Here's the thing. <laughs> it was the best Spanish teacher I ever had until I got to college and I was in Spanish too and I failed. <laughs> All right. My, the extent of my Spanish was like, ask Little Mermaid-o. <laughs> But I digress. <laughs> oh man, no, that's it's it's a good example, and you know, the, I think it's Little Mermaid. Ah, see, that shows how little I learned in Spanish that year. It's, it's all right. I took four years of German and don't know anything. So, um, you know, one one little bow tie on on this kind of thought uh, train we've gone down is that I think it's also important. Um, it, it it's also important to understand that people we we tend to think that people decide on policies and there are some that do but people make decisions on voting for a variety of reasons some are policy based some are what i'd call feeling based right and not thinking based based on who i feel connected to or resonates with um, some are based on, you know, broad generality. Some are based on identity in the sense that I'm from the South. Uh, all my friends and family vote this way. So the other side is evil. And some are based on, you know, on both sides, we'll call it cult-like behavior. So I think, again, when we assign, like, simple reasons or simple labels to broad, very broad groups of people, we all fail. Yeah, I agree, hundred um, percent. But we're fighting up, up. Uh, excuse me, we're swimming upstream because we live in this like 
social media clickbait world. And um, I think that that makes it hard. Um, and with that, we're going to end with a little bit of uh, humor. So today, as many of you know, we sent out a newsletter discussing these topics. The newsletter was titled Common Humanity. Someone wrote, you guys stopped being about performance. No one gives a crap about COVID and political preferences. Just saying, I used to like what you guys had to offer, but not anymore. Just my opinion. No one cares. That was from one of our unsubscribers. Another unsubscriber. Again, common humanity is what we wrote about. The only thing political we wrote about was common humanity. It's not even political. Not interested in your political views. And my favorite response to Steve's article in particular is, I cannot in good conscience continue to listen to or support anyone who supports the fascism of Joe Biden and the Democrat Party. Good luck in all your future endeavors. So I'm going to address these in the sense that I understand that people feel angry and what I just talked about in that feeling driving things is I think is important is we are blinded by the fact that our feeling of anger and discomfort then translate to, oh, I feel angry, discomfort. I like these guys are evil or <laughs> maybe evil is too far, but these guys are bad. I'm not going to follow them when the reality is, and I'm obviously biased, is if you feel that discomfort based on someone saying something that is not really political all again my brad's you can read them brad's was on polling errors and what that means not from a political stance but for- to be fair on mine to be fair to me and to be fair to the people it was political for a paragraph in the sense that i disclosed my bias right that might inform the rest of the article and my bias is i'm an independent person i voted for bush I was going to vote for McCain, but then Sarah Palin started talking like Sarah Palin, and that swayed me to Obama. I became enthusiastic about, about Obama based on his market-driven approach to providing health care for everyone, an idea that first was Mitt Romney's, and now I'd vote for anyone but Donald Trump. So, and then I said, but that's just, I'm just getting that out of the way so you all can see the context for what's in my head. And then I simply addressed polling from a completely nonpartisan standpoint, because polling is by definition nonpartisan. And Steve literally wrote a post called Common Humanity about what science says of coming together. And I, I described a 1954 study on 11-year-olds at summer camp. Um, so it, it, QAnon, man, QAnon, no wonder. But, but You're probably looking at videos of those 11-year-olds, you fascist. <laughs> but in reality, I think this is, this is a problem in the sense that if you feel that discomfort, if you feel that unease on something like that, it's a sign and a signal, a signal to pause, to step back, to ask, why do I feel this much discomfort or anger or unwillingness to like read this and want to take an action? Because we know that actions come from, you know, driven by feelings, which urge us to do something. Okay. And they're, you know, enforced by thoughts and rumination on the topic and we get to that action. So these people are having these feelings, having these thoughts and taking the action, which is replying or unsubscribing and replying. 
why does something so simple and non-political truly or you know stating your bias and then being non-political do that and i think that's a sign of the problem that we're at is that we can't even get to where we can discuss things that are even remotely political because it it sets us off it's like an uh, alarm system that is blaring in our head at the first moment of of anything and that's that's, you know go you don steve or you keep still going sorry i didn't mean to interject i I was on mute for a second keep going yeah no i i'm just i'm just throwing my thoughts out because i i feel very you know powerful about this because you know you know brad grew up in michigan which is always kind of in in between state you know i grew up in texas both went to public schools yep both both public schools you know both athletes so we grew up in you know playing sports and you know i'm i I, we've talked about this before it's not the only way to get it but by the nature of playing sports we grew up in very interracial environments exactly and like we both we both have family members who are very strong trump supporters and that that's you know it is so the the point isn't that like we're some neutral great party or you know independent people we try to be as independent as possible and convey you know scientific based evidence and and um all that in our newsletters and our books but but the reality is like we've got to get to a point where we can even talk to the other side and we can have these conversations and these discussions and we can not be triggered to a degree where it jumps straight to simple non-nuanced explanations in demonizing anyone who supports the fascism of the democratic party. Like that's just, we're never going to make it. (laughs) Love it. So I'm going to do a brief pause. We're going to now th- this is the end of the podcast that we did not have planned. So um if you made it this far, thank you for listening. Now we're going to keep going because now we're going even more off the reservation. Steve and I exchanged some text messages about everything we just talked about. All right, Steve. So with what you just said, what do you do with someone, whether it's a close family member, a friend or a stranger that supports the current candidate, Donald Trump, and also thinks that there should still be statues of Robert E. Lee. So I don't know. And I I say that because I honestly have no idea and I've confronted this. And to me, there's a lot of nuance here is I want to understand truly where that person's viewpoint is coming from. Okay, because, so let's really play this out. Because I think you give people here too much benefit of the doubt, and then but, the flip side would be maybe I'm too harsh but, and judgmental. But here, here's how I'm going to set the stage for you, though, Brad. Robert E. Lee is you from Michigan, okay? Might see hear Robert E. Lee and think like, oh, South Confederacy evil, right? And I get it. I agree. Like, he... Traitor. Traitor, right? That is how it is. But that's what I think. But growing up in Texas, growing up in the South, like from education to everything else, like we are taught, yes, that slavery was evil. Yes, that like the South was like whatever, <laughs> bad, etc. 
But we're also taught this narrative that Robert E. Lee was a great general who decided to, you know, go, who struggled, but and didn't have slaves, but decided to go over to Virginia side and the South side because he was a Virginian. And those were his people. And that is like the narrative that is around here. So when you say like Robert E. Lee and associate it with slavery, some people do, but some people don't hear and see it as this weird kind of confederacy machoism southern pride that is disconnected from slavery in a very strange way and i'm not trying to justify anything here yeah because i'm gonna i'm gonna keep i'm gonna keep questioning you so like pause right there okay so isn't that just an enormous failure on our country and isn't that by definition like systemic racism and if you educate that person if that person's not willing to hear you and be educated, then what do you do with them? Or if you educate them and they don't change your mind, because like the parallel example, and I've done this with a family member, is they don't have statues of Adolf Hitler and Goebbels in Germany. And Adolf Hitler and Goebbels are probably the world's best propagandist ever. And they were big time German nationalists. And they stuck by their country. So how come Germany, who had much less time, could get it right? And something that I heard from a, a, a white person who I was having this argument with, and again, this just, and I don't think that this is evil, but then I struggle when the person doesn't change their mind. They, and then I do start thinking it's evil. So they say, you know, well, you can't compare slavery to the Holocaust. Six million people were systemically gassed. I'm like, okay, that's true. They're different things. But... I got a two and a half year old son. Slavery, my two and a half year old son, when he turns four or whatever, is taken from me and sold. You know what? That's not very different than going to a gas chamber. And and I agree on all of that, just to make it clear. I'm just trying to explain. Yeah, no, no. I want, no, we're, again, yeah. if people hate us, then we're losing people. But we're really trying to like figure out how to confront these tough issues instead of just say, fuck that person, it's a racist, um, which is my inclination. But I'm trying to do better. So, so here's what I would say there. is the diff- I'm not even do better. I'm trying to yeah. understand more because the answer might and, be F. And I don't have all the answers. Really. I'm just some guy who grew yeah. up in Texas. But you grew up in the South, yeah. so I can learn from you. So, you grew up in Texas. So here's here's what I would say there. I've only been to Texas twice, both times Austin. That's not true. I've stayed with you a couple times in Houston. But when I stay with Steve, we're just in his house writing the entire time. So that doesn't really count. My other two visits to Texas have been to Austin, which I understand is not Texas. So what I would say there is is two things. Is the difference between Germany and World War II, Hitler, etc., is it was over a very compact time period. And it didn't get ingrained into the cultural narrative. In the South, the although the Civil War Confederacy was over a short period of time, the North and South divide was over from the beginning of the country, okay, the fa- and before then, and the Confederacy, the Confederate flag down here began to represent, in some people's minds, um, that Southern pride, um, that and that Southern division from the North from the beginning. Again, I'm not saying that is right or correct or whatever. 
I am just trying to explain like the division the there and what it largely represented during my time period. Again, my time period from 90s to 2000s growing up in Texas, not in the 60s and 70s where it might have represented something else. Understood. And, and then here's here's another thing that I'd say that I tell myself and I say to um, progressive liberal-minded people is if you want to be consistent, I believe you ought to give someone with a Confederate flag the same benefit of the doubt that you give a young kid that got arrested for having weed. That I guess it's slightly different, but the same benefit of the doubt that you give a young kid that shoplifted in that maybe they're not educated about the issue. Maybe they just made a mistake. Like they can be rehabilitated because if you want to rehabilitate the urban kid that messed up, then you should be equally excited about rehabilitating the dude that's saying Southern heritage with a Confederate flag where I still run into problems and I'm not asking you to answer this or tell me what to do, is okay. So you have that conversation. You make it so clear that to a great part of the country, this is like celebrating Adolf Hitler for very good reason. And then they say, well, that's fine. But by having the statue, I'm not harming them. I still want it up. Or by flying the flag, I'm not harming them. I still want it up. It's about heritage. I have a hard time wanting to ever talk to that person again. I'm just being straight. Yeah, I under I understand that. I do. Um and I don't I don't have the answer for you there at all. Yeah. I, I I mean and maybe that is the answer. Like just like there like there there aren't I don't believe there are fundamentally bad people, but I do believe that you don't have to talk to everyone. And maybe the answer is and it get, I think it gets most people a lot further on an issue like the Confederate flag, you give someone the benefit of the doubt that they're educated in a way that is very different than yours. You talk to them. You provide facts. You make analogies like the Holocaust, if that helps them see it. You talk to them about how it makes other people feel. And if they still don't change their mind, they don't have to go to jail. But yeah, you don't have to talk to that person. And if you don't want to do business with that person, you don't have to do business with that person. That's kind of where I come out. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I'm not sure how to respond to that. Um, I think <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, people are going to hate you for whatever you say. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I know that's, and that's not why I'm struggling. It's just, I'm thinking back in my life and, and thinking to people who do hold those, uh, who I have had those conversations with and do hold some of those views. And what I would say is that it gets better with time and with education. Um, not so much of the older people. Yeah, they're a lost cause. But you see this, even I think it was this year that I think it was Mississippi finally chose a different flag than the one that, yeah, you know, that's a big deal, which was a great deal. And you're, you're, you start to see this realization that like, oh, this symbol like is a problem. And I think, well, I wish we could wave a magic wand and like fix it right now. Um, the fact that like that progress is very slowly and gradually happening is 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 a good thing. Oh yeah, I mean it's better than not happening. Yes. So yeah. I I think we need to think of and it ways to accelerate that process. 
Um, not necessarily we're going to be able to fix it in an instant, but how do we, if it's happening, how do we accelerate that process in the South in a way that, you know, allows us to get to a point where we're not celebrating something that obviously, um, you know, causes, uh, obviously caused a lot of harm in the U S yeah. the world, et cetera. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Steve. I didn't mean to, to throw you on the spot for, um, for the end of this, but that's a good, good little side conversation. So, all right, here we are. It is now 1231. Um, we've been on for about an hour. We still don't have a winner of the election. Do what you can not to scroll and refresh nonstop. Know that Steve and I are going to do what we can not to nonstop scroll and refresh, yet we probably will still do a lot of scrolling and refreshing. Uh, hang in there. Be kind to yourself. Try not to let emotion get the best of you. Feel what you're feeling. Just don't be pulled and tossed around by it. It very rarely leads to anything good happening. Um, and coffee and if um you don't have a problem with alcohol then a beer or two is not the worst thing either for these very uncertain times and if you do have a problem with alcohol um even more respect to you for not for not having a beer or two right now because that's about all i got perfect embrace the nuance most people aren't evil let's find a way to come together that's my message of hope so God help us. Let's see what happens.